This is the Answering the Atheist video number two, part B. We're going to resume where we left off on part A, and we're going to jump right into the discovery of the real Mount Sinai. The Catholic Church said that Mount Sinai is in Egypt, and they built a monastery there called St. Catherine's. But the King James Bible says Sinai is in Arabia. And when archaeologists began to look in Arabia, they began to find some very interesting things when they followed along the pathway that the children of Israel followed as portrayed in the King James Bible. You're going to see the evidence that was left behind and the miracle of the burnt up mountaintop of Mount Sinai that the King James Bible says the mountain burned because God came down upon it you're going to see firsthand the evidence up close to help build your faith in Jesus Christ and in what this King James Bible says. We're also going to answer the other questions that the atheist asked. So I'm not going to waste any time. We're going to jump right into it. Hopefully you guys are enjoying the presentation that's being given here. And uh, I'll talk with you guys again at the end of the video. Older maps will reveal that Median is in northwest Saudi Arabia. This is where we should find the mountain of God today. Moses was tending sheep when he encountered a mysterious burning bush that was not being consumed. The Lord said to Moses, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Paul, in the New Testament, told us the location of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai in Arabia. Josephus told us Mount Sinai is the highest of mountains in the region of the city of Median. This is our destination, the real Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia, and is named today Jebel al-Laz. Herschel Shanks, editor of the Biblical Archaeology Review, stated, Jebel el-Laz is the most likely site for Mount Sinai. From the Saudi shore at the Gulf of Aqaba, we first inspect the remains of the pillar that once had Hebrew inscriptions on it, but was removed by the Saudis after Ron Wyatt showed it to the authorities. Today, a Red Sea coastal survey plate marks the location of the column. Our first destination is Elam, where the children of Israel would find water to drink. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. Using Google Earth, we are able to zoom in to the location of Elam. It stands out with all the green palm trees grouped together in the canyon or wadi. On the ground, we can see the circular wells still in operation today. Of course, there are more than 70 palm trees here today, but amazingly, 12 wells are still here at Elam.
The children of Israel would have been stretched out through the canyons here for a great distance, but they would have access to the drinking water at these wells. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. Next, the children of Israel traveled through the wilderness of Sin and murmured against Moses. The Lord lovingly provided them with manna every day, except the Sabbath. On a detailed map next to the town of Al-Bad, or ancient Median, we can see Mugair Shu'ayab, meaning the caves of Jethro. Here we see the name Jethro listed on the map. The facades of these caves were carved by the Navidians in more recent times, 2,000 years ago. But the inner caves themselves date back to the time of the Exodus and Jethro, 3,500 years ago. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. Northwest of Jebel el-Laws is the rock of Horeb that we will explore next. Standing on the crest of a hill, the singular rock stands 50 feet tall and can easily be seen from a great distance. As the people complained once again, asking for water, the Lord heard their cries, and he commanded Moses to strike the rock. Then, water gushed out in abundance. The rock was split down the middle, from top to bottom, by the hand of God. Erosion can be seen around the rock from millions of gallons of water flowing out into the nearby camp. He opened the rock and water flowed out. The fissure is so large, one can walk through the split in the rock. The rocks below show clear signs of water erosion. Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. Here in the encampment is a large square altar assembled with uncut stones and was built after the defeat of the Amalekites. Also in the encampment are the remains of these circular formations of stone used around the base of their tents. This is clear evidence of prior occupation at this site. Our next destination is Jebel al-Laws, or Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. As we pan across the mountains, we see the peak of Mount Sinai that was burned by the presence of God. The blackened peak of Mount Sinai marks the location where the mountain was on fire. Mount Sinai was completely in smoke 
because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. To the right of the peak is the location of Elijah's cave. It is extremely rare for anyone to obtain video of the mountain since entering Saudi Arabia is very difficult and they are guarding this mountain from those who would photograph it. Near the base of the mountain are the guardhouse and fence which surround the area where many artifacts are located that help to authenticate the site. This Saudi sign states, Archaeological Area, Warning, Unlawful to Trespass. Violators are subject to penalties, passed by royal decree. Using Google Earth, one can zoom in and see the guardhouse and fence, which are next to the sign. In the encampment area are many inscriptions, including this wonderful image of a menorah, which is undoubtedly the oldest ever found. Also found in the encampment was this broken millstone that would have ground up the manna that was collected. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Google Earth shows us the altar at the base of the mountain with an animal pen next to it that would have held animals to be sacrificed. Here we can see an entrance into the animal pen. The remains of pillars are in this area also. Some pillars are white in color, while others have more of a granite appearance and are very large in diameter, as we can see here. From this same area, one can look upward and see the burned and blackened peak. The rock has literally been burned from the intense heat. When Moses was on the mountain with God, a golden calf was built in the camp by a rebellious group. As Moses was descending the mountain, he saw the people dancing around the golden calf. Here we can see the encampment from the mountain and the location of the altar for the golden calf. Using Google Earth, we can zoom in on the large boulders which comprise the base of the altar. On the ground, we can see the massive large boulders and the fence erected by the Saudi authorities in an effort to preserve this site. Again, we have the government sign warning visitors to keep out. It was on top of these large boulders that the golden calf was placed 11 of the 12 tribes, save the tribe of Levi, danced around the golden calf in rebellion to God. Panning from Mount Sinai, we peer through the fence and see amazing images that are inscribed on the rocks. Egyptian-style figures of the Egyptian god Hathor have been placed here like graffiti, 
The bull was placed in high esteem in Egypt, where the children of Israel had just left. So they created images that came natural to their rebellious heart. These images were inscribed here because the golden calf was resting here at the time. These inscriptions are unique to Saudi Arabia, according to a Saudi archaeologist. Moses asks Aaron, I've come down the mountain, what on earth has happened here? And Aaron says, I took the ornaments from them, I took their gold, and I put it into the fire, and out popped this calf. But he makes it very plain that there was a single calf. I built the altar, I put it on the altar, and I turned to the people and I said, These be thy gods, plural, O Israel, which have led thee up out of the land of Egypt. It's something struck me very strange about that, because if you put one golden calf atop an altar, why would you say, these be thy gods, O Israel, if you've got one golden calf? Did he make more than one golden calf? You know, it, it puzzled me for a good length of time. Like Bob and Larry, the Caldwells look for the scriptural indicators. In studying some of the Hebrew, it says that Aaron fashioned the calf with a graving tool. It literally says, to engrave, as in something we would engrave a name on today. That sounds very strange because you, you, you mold something that's molten. You don't engrave it. But the way you built an altar in Egypt was to, in relief, cover it with gods and then put a chief deity, a statue of the chief deity, on it. If a golden calf were to have been put on the top, that scripture would not contradict itself. It would absolutely perfectly fit. And he would have placed it atop and said, in fact, these be thy gods, O Israel, which have led thee up out of the land of Egypt. When you go there, you can read the Bible like a map. And it says, this is here. Then you go forward ten steps, and this is here. For lots of people our age, you have to smack them in the face for them to believe something. Most of today's generation doesn't want to accept things that they can't see and touch and feel. You know, when you show them something like the Bible, and what it says, you know, this isn't just a story that somebody's trying to teach you in Sunday school. This is something real, and here's the proof. The top of Sinai is very black, darkened rock. It has a uh, appearance of, in some light, coal. It's extremely interesting because the closer you get up toward the blackened peak, you can see where the red, red granite folds down and the black begins. And it's a dividing line that is like night and day. In some light, it actually has a blue tinge to it. And one of the verses in scripture talks about the top of the mountain as if it were a sapphire stone. Especially toward noonday, it gets a shiny patina on it to where it looks like you're walking around on obsidian. It is literally that shiny and that black. When you stand there and you look all the way around you, there are convoluted mountain ranges going off in every direction. And there are none that are the color of the one you're standing on. It is black and every bit of the rest of it is a red, burnished, brownish granite as far as the eye can see. From high atop the mountain, Jim and Penny see the V-shaped altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice is what inspired us to continue to go back to the mountain. 
this is where the pillars are. And what are they doing there? These huge stone pillars. Again, civilization would have been required to construct these. It says in chapter 24 of Exodus that Moses got up early, he erected 12 pillars, he built an altar there at the base of the mountain, and then he brings oxen in for sacrifice. Recent excavations show evidence of ancient ash deep in the soil at this site. The 12 pillars were signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. What would we have for pillars? We found these white stone pillars, about 22, 24 inches in diameter. They're kind of a white, soft, marble-ish type material. They would have stacked right on top of one another. Uh, ancient Egyptian photographs show that this is a style of building, a, a pillar-type formation. Now, we don't know it's an altar. It, it, it's a rock formation, whatever it is, but I mean, what is it doing there? And, and why 12 pillars? And, and why not 9? Why not 14? Why 12? The Bible says it was of uncut stone and no steps. I mean, the precision of, of Scripture in here is amazing because it calls out that this altar is located right at the foot of the mountain. And sure enough, there it sat. From that moment forward, it was my mission, Penny and I together and the kids, we were going to document everything we could about it because our greatest fear was that once the Saudis realized exactly what they may have, they would come in with bulldozers and eliminate it. Hopefully, I have sufficiently answered the question as to miracles left behind. The Passover is a miracle based upon the 10 miracles that were dropped on Egypt. In video number one, we dealt with Noah's flood and the evidence that happened there. We've dealt with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened there. And we're going to deal with another one in a future question as well. I'm not sure how much more documentation the atheist would want, but the question was presented in such a way as he thought we didn't have any answers. But we do. So now we're going to go on to the next question. Question number eight. How do we explain the fact that Jesus has never appeared to you? Jesus is all-powerful and timeless, but if you pray for Jesus to appear, nothing happens. You have to create a weird rationalization to deal with this discrepancy. So he wants to know, how come Jesus doesn't appear to us visibly just because we ask? It's simple. Jesus is not a genie in a bottle where you rub the bottle and he comes out. That's why. Nowhere in the Bible does it say just because you ask him to show up, he's going to show up. He already told you when he comes back, every eye will see him. As the lightning shines in the east and is seen in the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. When he comes back, everybody's going to see him. He's not doing personal appearances for people. When you hear these TV preachers and stuff talking about God appeared to them, that's hogwash. That's baloney. Any time when God appeared to people in this Bible, their lives were changed forever. They were not the same person. Don't believe this story of people talking about you know, God appearing to them. Jesus never said he was going to appear to you individually. He never said he was going to appear to you visibly, individually. Again, why hold him to something he never said he was going to do? He already told you he's going to come back. And when he comes back, everybody's going to see him. But he's not going to give you your own personal appearance. He never said he would. Next question. Question nine. 
Why would Jesus want you to eat his body and drink his blood? It sounds totally grotesque, doesn't it? Why would an all-powerful God want you to do something that, in any other context, sounds like a disgusting, cannibalistic, satanic ritual? Okay, they want to know about eating the flesh and drinking the blood. This is one of those issues that gets very frustrating because the answer to the question is in the King James Bible, all he had to do was keep reading. That's all he had to do was keep reading. Jesus gave the explanation as to why he said that. And it had nothing to do with cannibalism. It just gets very frustrating. Because people have had their hearts turned away from God because of questions like this taken completely out of context, completely out of context, to try to make God look as bad as they can make him look. Let's get down to the bottom line. What's the context of the story? Why did Jesus make such a statement? He was talking with the religious leaders of his day. When Jesus walked this earth, the one group of people that hated his guts were the religious people. The scribes and the Pharisees, always trying to trick them, always trying to trap them. The scholars, always trying to trick them, always trying to trap them. And what he would do when he dealt with these religious leaders is he would talk to them in parables. Because he knew they didn't care what he had to say. He would talk to them in parables earthly story to have a spiritual meaning and they would never ask him what did these parables mean because they were the scholars they were the intelligent ones so they felt they already knew what he meant and they would always be wrong he would make a statement like destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up and them in their scholarly minds believed that they knew what he was talking about so they assumed that he was talking about their Jewish temple destroying their Jewish temple and rebuilding it in three days but the Bible says he spoke of the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. For those of you, by the way, who are in religions that teaches you that Jesus is not God, I would like for you to take a look at that verse and read it over and over and over until you understand what Jesus said. We know that God raised Jesus from the dead. Listen to what Jesus said destroy this temple this body he spoke of the temple of his body destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up I will raise my own body up he said if God raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus said destroy this temple this body and in three days I will raise it up then who does that make Jesus He must be God. God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus said he'll raise himself from the dead in three days. They assume he was talking about their Jewish temple. They were wrong. They didn't understand him. He was talking about his body. Later on in the Bible it says, Know ye not that your bodies are the temple of God? It brings it up again. Why? Jesus made the statement. It's picked up and it's repeated over here. He makes this statement that sounds so outrageous at the time because they didn't understand, but it sticks in your mind. 
And then later on, the understanding comes and you go, now I get it. Same thing is true with this one here. The religious leaders, whenever they get cornered by Jesus, would always revert back to Abraham or Moses. And Jesus was establishing, yes, the children of Israel, they ate manna in the desert. They ate the bread from God, but they still died. And God has sent you the living bread. And he was that bread. Jesus Christ was the bread. The, the bread of life that was sent from God. In the Old Testament, they had this manna sent from God every day, except for the Sabbath. But they would eat that manna, and they still died. So Jesus comes as the living bread. And he's using this symbolic speech that they didn't understand. But he would explain it to his disciples just a little bit later, right here in the King James Bible. He told them, they ate the bread, they died. But here is the living bread, and when you eat this bread, you'll live. He said, you eat my flesh, and you drink my blood. My flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And these scholars, and these educated people, the scribes, the Pharisees, lost their minds because they thought just like this atheist. Oh, he's talking about cannibalism. That's disgusting. No, he wasn't talking about cannibalism. In John chapter 6, verse 66, 666, John chapter 6, verse 66, when Jesus made that statement, it said, many parted and followed him no more. They misunderstood the word of God. And rather than going to the word of God, Jesus Christ is called the word of God. In John chapter 1 and in the book of Revelation, he's called the word. In the book of 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, in the King James Bible, Jesus is called the word. He is the word of God. Instead of going to the word of God to find out what he meant, they simply assumed that they knew. Just like this atheist and they parted and followed him no more. You've heard of Bible codes? Bible codes, they only work for the manuscripts the King James Bible is translated from. They don't work for the manuscripts the New Bibles are translated from. Because the King James is translated from those manuscripts, the King James Bible has codes in it too. And while the manuscripts tend to have letter codes, letter sequence codes, the King James Bible tends to have number codes in it. And it's very interesting that John, chapter 6, verse 66, 666, is a passage where the people misunderstood the word of God and walked away never to follow it again. Rather than reading it to get the understanding. At 666, they walked away from the Word of God. Think that's coincidence? I don't. So what did he mean? By eating his flesh and drinking his blood. When you look at the full context where he's talking about the children of Israel, they had bread in the wilderness, 
but they ate that bread and they died. Yet Jesus is coming to be the living bread to give to mankind that if we eat of this bread, we're going to live. He took his disciples aside and explained to them what he meant. And he took bread and he broke the bread. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it and do this in remembrance of me. He didn't, he didn't rip off some flesh and hand it to him and say, here's my flesh, eat this. As a cannibal would want you to think, or as an atheist would want you to think. That's not what he did. He took bread that would symbolize his body. He broke it. See, he knew they would remember that statement that he made earlier about eating the flesh and drinking the blood. And now he's explaining this bread symbolizes my flesh, which is going to be broken. It's broken for you. Breaking the bread. Take this and eat it. Take this bread. As a reminder of what I'm doing for you. Then he takes the wine. And he gives it to them. And he says, this is the New Testament in my blood. He didn't cut his wrist and pour blood in there and say, drink this. He used wine as a symbol of his blood and said, this is the New Testament in my blood. Take it and drink it. Do this in remembrance of me. It had nothing to do with cannibalism. He made a statement back here that he knew would stick in their mind so that he would then over here show them, this is what I meant by that. And what he did that day, we call today the communion. Remember I mentioned earlier, a miracle left behind by Jesus? The communion. Why is it that we Christians celebrate communion several times a year? Where we break the bread and we drink the wine or the grape juice. Why? Because Jesus expressly told us to do so to do it in remembrance of him until he returns. We would not have had that strong message if he hadn't made that statement about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He dropped that on us so that we would have an understanding of something that would stick in our head the same way when he told those Jewish leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They never forgot that. You know why? Because when he was on that cross, what did the Jewish leaders say? You who destroyed the temple in three days and raise it again, bring yourself down off that cross. They remembered what he said. They remembered what he said. The same way when he made that statement about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, his disciples remembered what he said. They knew he wasn't talking about cannibalism. He was creating a ceremony for us all who are Christians. The breaking of the bread symbolizing his body that would be broken for us. The drinking of the wine or the grape juice as some churches do to symbolize the blood that he shed for us to give us a new testament. Under the old testament we were under thou shall not, thou shall not, thou shall not, thou shall not and we couldn't live under that. It was too hard for us. 
So he took those old ordinances and he nailed them to his cross when he died. And then he comes and he gives us a New Testament. And this New Testament is a testament of grace. God showing his mercy to a rebellious human race. That to this day, even though Jesus did all these things for us, if you understand what he went through going to the cross, the whipping that he took, the beating that he took from the Roman soldiers, the crown of thorns placed upon his head, being paraded down the street where the people mocked him and spat on him in the whole nine yards, and then nailing him to the cross and hanging him on it under that hot Israeli sun. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Roman soldier taking his spear and ramming it into his side and piercing him all the way up in blood and water poured out, the Bible said. All that he did there symbolized in the breaking of that bread. He didn't want us to forget what he did. In that cup, the wine, the grape juice that some churches use, symbolizing that he's giving us a New Testament now. Grace, mercy from God. And this grace and this mercy has endured now for almost 2,000 years. He's shown mercy to the human race, wanting us to come to Jesus Christ, come to his word to learn who he really is. He's been very patient for nearly 2,000 years with the human race. How much more patience is he going to have on a human race that does this to the one who died for us. Name another God on the face of this earth whose name is used every day on television, radio, internet, podcasts, every form of communication that I can think of. There's only one God's name who is used every day as a curse word. And that's Jesus Christ. After all he did for us, it's his name that this world chooses to use to swear by and to curse people. How long do you think he's going to put up with that? He's showing us mercy, guys. He wants you to come to him for forgiveness. You can't earn it. Being good is not going to get you to heaven. Being religious is not going to get you to heaven. You'll find that nowhere in the Bible. The Bible says our good works are like filthy rags in God's face. He didn't ask you to do good works. He asked you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. If you want to be an atheist, that's your choice. But if you're being an atheist based upon false information that's been given to you, I've been answering every single question you guys have tossed at me. Backing up with documentation, scientific documentation, archaeological documentation, Bible documentation. If you still choose not to believe, it's not my fault. I'm trying. I don't hate you. I haven't screamed not one time. I haven't called your names or nothing. But ask yourself. Why do so many of you use the name of Jesus Christ as a curse word? What has he ever done bad to you? What has he ever done to you? Do you use his name as a curse word? The answer to your question is simple. 
It had nothing to do with cannibalism. Jesus made a statement so that it would stick in your head. Just like when he told the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. The thought of their temple being destroyed was anathema to them. They couldn't stand that thought. And they never forgot it. They never forgot that he said it. And when he made the statement about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they never forgot that statement. But they never asked him what he meant. But his disciples did. And they got the answer. That he was going to break his body. His body was going to be broken for us. And his blood was going to be shed for us. And we were to do this, drinking the wine, eating the broken bread, in remembrance of him. It had nothing to do with cannibalism. Nothing whatsoever, when you read it in its context. Let's go to the next question. Finally, question number 10. Why do Christians get divorced at the same rate as non-Christians? Christians get married in front of God and their Christian friends, all of whom are praying to God for the marriage to succeed. And then they say, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. God is all-powerful, so if God has put two people together, that should seal the deal, shouldn't it? Yet Christians get divorced at the same rate as everyone else. To explain this, you have to create some kind of convoluted rationalization. Okay, divorce. Divorce in Christianity. Well, it's real simple, guys. It's real simple. Your question is based upon this concept that just because the marriage vow says, whom the Lord has brought together, let no one tear asunder, you assume that God brought those two together. Who is to say that he did? Can we just be honest for a moment? It may have been sex that brought them together. It may have been money that brought them together. It might have been necessity that brought them together. It may have been love that brought them together. But just because the marriage vow says God brought them together doesn't mean that he did. It's basic, simple, easy. No heavy lifting there. The Bible already told you, by the way, why divorce is the way that it is. It says here in the book of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 8, He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Because of the hardness of man's heart, divorce was permitted. That's why. Just because we're Christians don't mean we're perfect. Never claim to be. We're human beings. We make mistakes, just like everybody else. The difference is, we come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. We understand who we are and what we are. And we ask for forgiveness and we try to do the right things. And it doesn't always work every time. It doesn't always work for us down here. But we know that in the end, he that began a good work is faithful to complete it. Marriages might not last. Friendships might not last. But one thing that we know, there's nothing that's going to pull us out of the hands of Jesus Christ. The Bible said so. And that's it. Your ten questions are answered. I'm Jason Zelda, and I want to thank you guys for watching the video. 
and I hope I have given you guys some information that you can uh, build on and grow upon. You can research some more to find out more. I appreciate you taking your time out to watch the video. And I want to say thank you to all of those who watched the videos that I've put together. Uh, those of you who sent comments, I really look forward to those comments uh, because I never know when I put together a video like this if anybody's going to watch, if anybody's going to care, or anything. So when I get a comment from somebody, it at least lets me know you're out there. And I want to say thank you also to those who have donated. There was a lady who had contacted me recently asking me uh, about donating to this ministry, and I'm like, well, sure, if you want to, <laughs> you know. I told her, I said, I've been posting videos on YouTube, uh, ministry videos, for about two years or so. And in two years' time, I've gotten four donations in two years. And those four together didn't equal $100. But I'm thankful, I'm very thankful that anybody would want to donate anything to here. Every, every little bit counts, believe me. I do all this work on my own. All the electronics, the computers, the software, the camera, the editing software, uh, the research, all of this stuff I had to buy on my own, out of my own pocket. Before I started putting together the YouTube site, I had another site that was up for over 13 years, going on 14 years now. And in 14 years, I received zero donations from that site. But I continued to preach and teach the Bible. So if it's on your heart to donate something, as it was with this lady who had contacted me, feel free to do so. There's a donation link there on my YouTube page. If you're listening to this on my other ministry page, it'll be at the top. If you want to donate something, that'll be fine. And uh, I really appreciate it, trust me. I work really hard to try to give you guys the best information, very documented, and try to help out wherever I can. And I really appreciate it. So I look forward to hearing from you guys. Thank you for watching the video. And until next we meet, may the grace of my God Jesus be with you. Good night, everybody.